this morning from the prophecy of Micah, chapter 7. And we call your attention for a little while this morning to especially the verses 18 and 19 of this chapter. Micah 7. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleaners of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth. There is none upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with an net. That they may do evil and both with both hands earnestly, the prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward. And the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire, so they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn edge. The day of thy watchmen and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Trust ye not in a friend, <clears throat> put not ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, and the daughter rises up against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Therefore I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the Lord, the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her, now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. In the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also he shall come even to the, thee from Assyria, and from the fortified cities, and from the fortress even to the river, and from the sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding the land shall be desolate because of them, that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. Feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thine inheritance shall dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. 
They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou shalt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Thus far. Our text, we said, is found in verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again and will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We do not have the time this morning because of the administration of the sacrament of baptism uh, to dwell at length as we had planned to on the in our introductory remarks in regard to this prophet and his prophecy. Micah, as you know, undoubtedly, is called in the first chapter of this prophecy the Morristite, <coughs> which means, of course, that he came from Morishah, which you may find lies slightly to the south and west of Jerusalem. And undoubtedly, from that point of view, Micah may be called a country prophet. He prophesied during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And as you may know from the history recorded in Kings and Chronicles, this was a Reformation period in the history of Judah. Uh, Micah prophesied both to Judah and to the kingdom of Israel, and he was also given to see the captivity of Israel. And undoubtedly, as you must understand his prophecy as being a special word to the kingdom of Judah, who also presently, after they have filled their cup of iniquity, will be brought into captivity in Babylon. It's also remarkable that this man of God was given to see the truth of the gospel and was given also to proclaim it perhaps more succinctly than any of the others. When you consider that it was he who prophesied not only the birth of the Messiah, but even designating the place where he was to be born. 
in chapter 5, verse 2. And then you must consider that he was given some very clear insights into the truth of the gospel. And that leads me to say, beloved, that we must understand that the people of God in the old dispensation were not minus a gospel, but they had it. Just as really as we of the new dispensation. And they understood it too. And Micah, uh, according to the spirit that was given unto him, revealed unto those of his time and unto us, because his word is preserved in the scripture, uh, the truth of the gospel that God is pleased to gather in Christ out of all peoples a people for himself, a people that is to be redeemed through righteousness, unto whom he will show his eternal, unchangeable mercy. And it is in that light that we understand also the words of the text which we have chosen for our consideration this morning. The Lord will show unto his people his unfailing mercy. And it is to that that I call your special attention. I would have you notice with me first of all its compassionate nature. Secondly, its unworthy recipients, and finally, for a few moments, call your attention to the redemptive power of this unfailing mercy of God. Mercy, of course, as you know and have been instructed to believe, is one of God's attributes. Our covenant youth are instructed in essentials of Reformed doctrine to distinguish these attributes of God as being uh, attributes which are not to be found in any sense of the word comparatively in the creature. There are also attributes which are called communicable attributes of which you do find a creature likeness in man such as his love and grace and mercy, righteousness, holiness, etc. When this distinction is made, and I have found through the years of giving instruction this is not always understood clearly, we must not understand, of course, that there are certain attributes of God which he retains and keeps entirely and exclusively to himself, while there are other attributes of God of which the creature 
also partakes. That's not the meaning nor the significance of that distinction of incommunicable or communicable attributes. I have found sometimes when you instruct young people in this and you give them a text, they still don't understand that. They say, well, there is some attributes which God has and there are also some attributes which man has. That's not the meaning. That's not the idea of that distinction. And it simply means that there is in a creature way a reflection of these virtues of God, one of which is that which we are to consider this morning, namely his mercy. You'll find mercy also among men. Now that doesn't mean that they are partly divine, that some of God drops on them like the sky on chickadee, but uh, they have through grace a a certain reflection of the perfect attributes of God, which are absolutely, eternally his own. And he never gives himself away. Let's put it that way. Mercy is one of those attributes of God, uh, which of which you may find through grace a certain reflection in the creature. But mercy is of God. It is God's mercy. And let me say that when all of these attributes of God are exemplified, they are brought to manifestation, then you see him in his glory. All of the attributes of God may be consummated in that one expression, his everlasting glory. Of that glory of God, which reflects him in all of his perfection. Mercy is only one of them. But it's peculiar, beloved, that in this text and in context, <clears throat> that of all of these attributes of God, which are clearly manifested to us, it is this one virtue, this one grace, this one attribute that is singled out as being exceptional, outstanding. That doesn't mean, of course, that God's eternity and his infinity and his immutability and his independency and his love and his grace are not important, that they do not uh, need to be emphasized for that they are. But the point of view of the text is that of all of the graces of God which come to the child of God, it is this one, his mercy, that swallows him up, that attacks him, 
that makes him to see his God as he could possibly never see him before or after. In other words, when the child of God looks at his God, as God is pleased to reveal himself to him, it is this grace, this mercy of God that strikes him, that envelops him, that enthralls him, that lifts him up. That's the idea of the text. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. You'll notice that the prophet here asked the question, Who is a God like unto thee? He's speaking, of course, to God. And, of course, God is not to be compared. Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 18, uh, posits the same idea. When he says, to whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? And the answer to those questions is, nothing, no one. God cannot, may not be compared. He's not to be brought down to the level of any other creature which of course would be the case if he were to be compared. Even a God that is called the God that is not is a creature. God may not be brought down to be compared. That's not the idea of the text either. The idea is to show that incomparable nature of God and particularly the incomparableness of his mercy. Who is a God that delighteth in mercy as thou dost? There is not. Thou delightest in mercy. The great Jehovah God. And this truth, of course, must must strike us. That's the idea of this text and this sermon this morning. You have a great God, beloved, full of infinite perfections, who cannot be compared, who is exalted, high above all, and who from his pinnacle of glory reveals himself unto us, creatures of the dust, sinful, corrupt creatures, his unchangeable 
eternal mercy. That's my text. But what is that? What is that mercy? And briefly, beloved, mercy of God is that will of God, eternal, unchangeable counsel and purpose of God to make his people who are by nature dead in trespasses and sin, who are swallowed up in misery, to be delivered from that misery and to be exalted in highest bliss. Mercy is the will of God to bring out of the corruption of sin and death a certain people and to make them blessed as he is blessed. Always in Scripture, I don't care whether it's in the Old or in the New Testament, fundamentally that is the idea of the mercy of God. And you understand, of course, that this will of God is not just some passing uh, fancy that he must have for a certain people, which today may be uh, experienced or demonstrated, but tomorrow... Uh, forgotten, oh no, God's mercy is an eternal mercy because his will is an everlasting counsel and purpose. I, Jehovah, change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed is the unchangeable, eternal Jehovah. He remains firmly fixed in the meridian of his own glory, power, majesty, but also in his will and purpose. Not, never is he frustrated. There is nothing that can happen that can spoil his purpose his, and uh, frustrate his will but his will shall be done. And that means then that his mercy shall reach us. And he delights, that is the idea of the text, he delights, especially he delights, beloved, to show unto us his unchangeable eternal mercy. Which when it is finished, we only see this now in principle, you understand. When it is finished, it shall bring every last one in whom he delights into the eternal blessedness of his own life and covenant. That, beloved, is the compassionate nature of the unfailing mercy of God. Now you'll notice that the text calls attention also to the recipients of that mercy. <coughs> <coughs> Verse 
Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his, inherit, of his heritage? That those who are the recipients, the objects of this mercy are a remnant of his heritage. And also here, it must be stressed that remnant does not mean, as is so often understood, I think, a certain leftover. Somebody got the best of all the people, but God gets what's left over. <clears throat> I think I used this illustration here in Hope Church before. Our women are acquainted very well with the idea of a remnant. <clears throat> when they go to the dry goods store to buy remnants, that means that most of the bulk of cloth has been sold. The merchant has just a little left over. Well, now maybe you can use that to make a little dress for your daughter. So you buy a remnant. A remnant is what's left after the best is gone. That's the idea of a remnant. But when the Bible uses the term remnant, as is the case in the text, don't you ever conclude that that is just a left over? Something that God gets after everybody else has made their choice first. This eternal, unchangeable, and willing, counseling, merciful God, beloved, I said a moment ago, will not and cannot be frustrated in his purpose. And that must mean that everything that he has purposed is very real before him. And though it may be true that that people whom he has chosen and given unto Christ and be, will be redeemed by him and unto whom he will show his mercy is small in number compared to the great host that shall never enter into the blessed estate but shall go into everlasting perdition. That number of the remnant is so great that it cannot be numbered. A host innumerable. But it is always described in the scriptures as a remnant. You have that same thing in Deuteronomy 32 verse 9. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. And that word lot there means court. God puts a rope. Around this people. Out of all the peoples of the world. He put a rope around his people. He says that's mine. That's what I want. That is the object of my love and grace and mercy. They are going to see all the dispensations of my eternal unchangeable mercy. Forever. But that remnant, historically, is a people that is laden with sin. 
They lie in the bowels of death. They're unworthy. And I read especially verse 9 of the preceding context. You hear, uh, as it were, uh, a confession. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Notice, I have sinned against him. That is the conviction and the knowledge which the mercy of God presses out of the child of God. That's why that publican, you know, in the temple stood way in the back, not up in front like the Pharisee, exalting himself, but beating on his breast. He did not even dare to look up to heaven. He simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful, oh, merciful, be merciful to me. That is, take my sins away. I have sinned. I have transgressed against thee. I have polluted my way before thee. I am unworthy to be called thy servant. I am not a worthy object of mercy, but be merciful unto me. Come down in my distress and deliver me. Lift me up, put my feet upon the rock. Save me for thy name's sake. Be merciful unto me. Such undoubtedly are to be considered the recipients of this mercy. And mercy which comes to them through the captain of their salvation. That's why that chapter 5 of Micah is so significant. He saw him coming, born in Bethlehem, son of God in the flesh, born under the law, comes into the sphere of the law, the undone, the wretched. And he takes all of his sins on him. He's their representative before the tribunal of the merciful and righteous God. God causes all of his holy wrath. Oh, he cannot for a moment look at his people through his fingers, you know. Say, well, that's my possession. They couldn't help it. They are wicked perverse but they can't help it and so I just forget about their sin and their corruption oh no then he would not be a righteous God you understand the mercy of God is a righteous mercy that's what is meant by God's simplicity all of his attributes are one in him and that means if he's going to show to his people his everlasting mercy it must be in 
the way of righteousness. It must mean that sin is reckoned with, every last sin. And beloved, this is what you and I have to see here this morning. God takes all of your and my sins and he lays them on Christ. And he says, now you bear my wrath over against all I sin. And that's what he did. That's the cross. All of the vials. Oh, and when he was under the vials of that wrath, he was even amazed at its intensity. How it burned at him when he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that it appeared to him in the judgment God had forsaken him he didn't he delivered him because he was righteous you know he merited through his suffering the right to a life and to glory not only for himself but for all his people that's mercy of God too you see a righteous mercy but he comes under the wrath of God and he suffers in their stead and they become the recipients of his mercy instead of his judgment, everlasting punishment. And that's where you and I must see ourselves this morning, beloved. Through Jesus Christ, you are the object of God's mercy, his will to deliver you from everlasting desolation and give unto you in principle to taste the blessedness of the redeemed. And that leads me to call your attention briefly in conclusion. To how he deals with our sin. He pardons iniquity. He passes by transgression. When God pardons iniquity, he takes our iniquity, our sins, our guilt, and he lifts it up. And he places it on the head of our Redeemer. So you and I don't have it anymore. It's gone. I will say that to you this morning. You don't have any sin. You don't have any guilt. You're right. You believe that? And that's why there's going to be a judgment day, all right, but not for you. In which you will be judged, and I. That's why you don't have to fear that judgment day either. It's a day of acquittal. It's a day when God shall say before men and angels and devils, the remnant, my people upon whom I have sold my mercy in Christ, the righteous, they're worthy. They're worthy of eternal life. Do you believe that? 
then you have no fear for the day of judgment. There's something to be looked forward to. The day of your final justification. But now in principle, you have no sin. You have no guilt. You are righteous before God. God in his mercy has taken away your iniquity. He has lifted it up from you. He has caused it to pass away on the head of the Redeemer who went down into the depths of the abyss of hell to suffer in your stead. You see? And when the text tells us that he passes by our sin, our transgression, that cannot possibly mean that he simply neglects it, omits it, that he doesn't deal with it, doesn't see it, doesn't mean that. You always have that problem. I think you have that in the confessions too. When they talk about reprobation, passes by certain ones, chooses some and he passes by others. That leaves the impression that, well, he just neglects them. He, he doesn't do anything with them. That's not the idea. Nor is that the idea in the text. God doesn't pass by anything, beloved. All of your sin, all of your transgression, he sees it, he deals with it, he dealt with it in Christ once and for all. And it can never be brought to your attention again. Understand that. Oh, that doesn't mean that we still don't have a sin problem. It doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. Don't get that crazy idea in your head. We still sin. John tells us that in chapter 1 of his epistle. He that says that he has no sin is a liar. The truth is not in it. We sin daily. We sin momentarily. We sin even when we are doing good works. That's our problem, you know. We have all kinds of sin. But understand it well, beloved. They have been dealt with and dealt with forever. God has removed all of your transgressions. He has passed them by. And very beautifully, I think, in the last part of the text you read, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. That's where they go. Oh, they're gone. All my sins are cast away in the depths of the sea. And you can't find them anymore. They are blotted out. You see? That, beloved, is the unfailing mercy of God. And therefore, be, you and I will stand as we call to your attention already <clears throat> in, with a child of God in verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. I, I think that our Lord Jesus Christ said that. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Because I have sinned against him, he took all of our sin, which is against God. And God dealt with him. And that must mean something to us, beloved. 
That means that I'm saved. I don't have to be saved. I'm saved. It means that I am righteous. I don't have to be made righteous. I am righteous before God. I shall never be brought into condemnation for my sin. He has delivered me from all my transgression. He makes me the object of his eternal favor. Blessed. That beloved unto all eternity will be constitute the song of the redeemed. Merciful art thou, o God, Jehovah, the God of the everlasting covenant. Thou hast delivered us from so great condemnation unto such great heights of glory. Glory and praise be unto thy name forevermore. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we come unto thee to thank thee for this blessed moment that we might spend in thy house to consider thee, the God of our salvation, as thou art pleased to reveal thyself unto us in the Holy Scripture. The God who delights in showing unto us his mercy who delivers us from our great condemnation unto the highest possible bliss and glory which we shall share with thee and with all the redeemed forever and ever in the house of thy eternal covenant through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.